Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 24, 2010, and my guest today is Arnold Kling, who blogs at EconLog, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. Arnold, welcome back to EconTalk. Thank you. Our topic today is uh, an imaginative one. I want us to imagine a little bit about the world without government, particularly in the financial and credit and mortgage markets, and try to... Think about what the world might look like if government's role was different from what it is now. There is a tendency, as you've noted many times uh, at EconLog, it's a tendency to try to recreate things that went bad during the crisis. And we might instead say, well, maybe we ought to move away from that instead of trying to recreate what we had before, but better, of course. So I thought what we'd do today is, and this this comes, the idea for this Conversation comes from a post that you did imagining what a world would look like without uh, government involvement in the mortgage market. I want to start by the conversation by asking you about what, what banks do or what they might do in a world that was um, less uh, government regulated. What, what is the role of banks in connecting um, people with money uh, and people who don't have money? Well, that's a uh, certainly a, a question that has uh, produced pr- plenty of arguments. But uh, my view on that is that people who are not in the financial sector, that is, people who are entrepreneurs who are looking to fund investments or households that are trying to save, uh, would love to have on their balance sheets risk-free liquid assets, things that look like checking accounts. And at the same time, <coughs> they would like to have on the liability side of their balance sheet uh, risky liabilities, so consumer debt that has no collateral behind it or um, long-term investments that are uh, illiquid. You know, my favorite is you know, planting fruit trees that aren't going to produce fruit for quite a while. So you have the what I call the non-financial sector wanting to have uh, riskless liquid assets and issue risky illiquid liabilities. And what I, th- is I see the financial sector is doing is taking the opposite side of that. So they, they hold the risky illiquid assets like the uh, shares in the fruit trees um, and they uh, issue riskless uh, liquid liabilities like checking accounts. But what a bank is is just somebody, in theory, is an, is an economic agent that connects people on those sides of the transactions. I mean the bank really isn't on the opposite side of the transaction. They are literally, but they're really bringing together other folks on the other side. So – the way I think about it, and it's different from the way you think about it, so maybe we can try to merge them together. I'm a I'm a a professor, and in good years, where my I keep my expenditures down, I spend less than I consume. So I have what we call savings, and I have to decide what to do with that. So it's good to do a bunch of things with it, diverse things. Some of the money I'm going to put into assets that I don't expect to get at for a while, those fruit trees you're talking about that might have a higher, we hope, a higher rate of return. But I want to keep a lot of my money safe for an emergency or a sudden uh, unexpected purchase. So when I – and I don't want to also keep my money in my mattress because it might get stolen if my house got broken into. So a bank, for for starters, is a safe place, but I'd like when I come back to get my money, which I'm going to do in an erratic way, I'm not going to say to the bank, every six weeks I want to take a certain amount out. I want to say, 
here's a bunch of my money. Take good care of it. Don't let it get stolen. Put it in a big vault with a really thick door and people with guns to protect it, which I don't want to deal with in my house. And in the meanwhile, you might want to do something with it that that would make interest, that would earn money, additional funds, so that when I come to get my money back in six months or a year or three years or five years, and I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming, I'd like to get more than when I when I started. And so – I'm willing to let you, the bank, do something with my money that's as long as you're able to pay me back when I come in at, at this unexpected time in the future. So the bank then is going to look for opportunities to lend that money at rates that are higher than the rates they promised me so that they can cover their costs. And um, some of the things they're going to do are going to involve housing. Some are going to involve bank backing small businesses like you talked about that want money up front because they're starting a business. How does my story – how do we connect those two stories? Um, well, well, let's do it this way. One question to ask is what can a bank do that you can't do for yourself? Ah, that's good. I like that. Um, so um, <clears throat> you know, one thing it can do is it can you – know, as you said, it could have – some, I think of this sort of economies of scale. Maybe you know it has vaults, and you know it's expensive for you to put a vault in your house. But if you spread the cost of a vault over lots of people, uh, you know, that's that's that, you know, that's one story. It, it's not my key story. No, but that's that's true. That's uh, good. So what? But the so second thing the, is uh, one of the things that it, that a bank can do is diversify. So. Um, you know, it's hard for me to buy small shares in lots and lots of uh, risky investments, lots of different entrepreneurs' businesses. But a bank with its you know, economies of scale can do that, and because it has a diversified portfolio, uh, gets a better risk-return trade-off. So that's one story. And there's a piece of that that's I think of as even more important, which is, I don't want to really become an expert at figuring out who's reliable and who's likely to pay me back, and right. so that's the bank's that, doing that for me. That's the second story. So, so first, there's diversification, and there's also they diversify across consumer needs. So, you may need to take out money tomorrow. I may need to take out money next week. By having a diversified set of of consumers. They don't need to have all their money withdrawn at once, even though each of us individually might be making big withdrawals at different times. So it takes advantage of that kind of <laughs> diversification. So there's diversification at the lending end. There's a little diversification at the deposit end. And there's the other issue, which you raised, which is it develops expertise in assessing credit quality and in managing loans. And, you know, deciding, you know, when to squeeze the borrower, when to give them an extension, when to foreclose, whatever. So uh, in underwriting, that is, you know, selecting risk and in uh, servicing, managing a loan portfolio, the bank develops specialized expertise. So those are the things that, it, that the bank can do that you can't do for yourself. It can diversify more effectively and it can... Uh, develop specialized expertise. And the, the third thing that happens with banks is wh what's important is in addition to it, their ability to do that is they have to have a reputation for doing that. Because if you don't believe that the bank is actually good at doing what it does, uh, you won't trust it with your money. Uh, and if you do believe it, then you will. And that third aspect, so there's, there's sort of three ways that banks kind of induce you to, to bring money, put money in them. One is they diversify well, but you better than you can. The other is that they have specialized knowledge. And the third way is the reputation. And it's the reputation that I think creates the volatility in finance because you know, reputations can just rise and fall. And when reputations rise inappropriately, banks can take more and more risk and... Uh, you know, I think that's kind of what happened. And, it's a strange uh, thing, of course. I, I, I want to. I don't want to spend too much time on this issue of of 
of reputation, although certainly trust and and the potential for bank run is something we're going to have to talk about eventually. But I just want to stick with this trust issue for a minute and reputation, just the, this, this, just the idea of reputation. You talk about how it can rise and fall. It doesn't rise and fall very much elsewhere in the economy. Um, I mean, it can, but, but it's, you know, when I say Honda makes a reliable car, um, that's a reputation that Honda has earned over the years. They have worked hard to maintain the reputation. They have an enormous stake in maintaining the reputation. Things can happen unexpectedly. The Toyota brake problem, we'll see how much that, that's hurt their reputation somewhat, but not doesn't seem to have been decisive for, for the right reasons. It doesn't seem to indicate some across-the-board carelessness on their part. Uh, it looks more like either bad luck or the way they handled it was poor. But in the corporate world generally, companies develop a reputation – and um, it, it, as long as they have a large stake in maintaining it, they're, they're pretty good at maintaining it. Walmart has a reputation for low-cost, low-price items of, of reliable quality. Grocery store chains have a certain reputation of what the, their produce is like and their cleanliness of their stores, and, and those seem to be sustained. Um, Land's End has a reputation as a as – a, again, they don't make their own clothes, but – we rely on them, those of us who shop there, that, that they will source those clothes from reliable places where the buttons don't pop off all the time. And if they do, they, they replace them. So it's interesting that, that banks, uh, of course, their product is a little bit peculiar. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's got to be the story, that there's some more inherent fragility because um, if a, let's say if an auto manufacturer's product is starting to deteriorate, you know, unless they build a car that, you know, is going to work fine for five years and then collapse altogether, your chances are you're going to observe the deterioration in quality. People are going to start to report, you know, I bought Hondas. I'm thinking that, you know, the last time I bought a Honda, I got 200,000 miles on it. This time, I have it in the shop, you know, six times in the first two years. And people start hearing those stories, and so the reputation goes away. In the case of banking... The reputation stays good until it's sort of too late for people to do anything about it. I think that's the kind of the fragility. Well, there. some of that is part of the very nature of how banks make their money, which is they don't have all the money in the bank at the same time, and we don't want them to, right? As the depositors, we want to earn interest on the money. We're willing to take some risk – that not so much that, that all the loans that the bank made will go bad and then the money will disappear. That, that is one way you destroy your reputation. And I, I think that's we'll, – we'll talk about that. But the other thing that worries you, which is sort of abstract and then starts to eat at you if you're worried, is what if all the other depositors show up at the same time, what's called a run on the bank? And historically, that, you know, that happens from time to time in the banking world. And in different markets, banks usually stem that tide by either in the past, before the, the government was involved, they would create a consortium to create the resources to, to solve that problem. And they also, and this is what I'd like to talk more about, they'd also limit your ability to, to have your money on demand. So I'm, I would have to forego, if, I'm willing, if I want to get some interest, if I want to get more than I put in, if I, I want the bank to be my intermediary and, and middleman and search for those reliable loans and that diverse portfolio and vet the people, et cetera, I know they have to use my money and your money, the other depositors' money. So I'm willing to forego my immediate access to that money. I might have to announce when I want my money that, it, that, that I'm willing to accept a delay. I'm willing to forego having my access to my cash on demand uh, in return for the fact that, that they'll be able to invest it more effectively. So it seemed, yeah, and there are all sorts of contracts that do that. I mean, the most classic being the certificate of deposit, which, you know... Is what? The, the certificate of deposit. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you, know, you can withdraw your CD early. You just don't get as much interest, uh, and you may pay a penalty. And that discourages me, right. which gives the bank a little more freedom to use the money productively. So 
what I want to distinguish between, and maybe it's not a relevant, it's a distinction without a difference, but it seems to me there's a difference between a bank that, uh, just for example, this morning I was uh, riding into work and I heard an ad on the radio, which for a bank I, I will not name, it's a bank that's been involved in the financial crisis and it's offering a very high rate of return on their credit card, cash back 5%. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a lot of money, cash back. Five percent. Then I start to think, yeah, whose money are they playing with? Well, they're kind of playing with maybe my money, <laughs> the taxpayer money. Um, and you know, there's a lot of incentive when banks don't have to bear the downside risks, or when people think that they might be insulated from the downside risks. There's incentives for them to offer rates of return that they normally wouldn't wouldn't think of offering. So we could think about t- different ways that banks could degrade their reputation. One would be not degrade, they would lose their reputation. One would be malfeasance, you know, lending to people who are bad risks, pushing the envelope, um, holding an inadequate amount of capital to, to stem a, a sudden unexpected rush by, by depositors. Or we could just imagine uh, a madness of crowds, right? Well, except I, I think there really are many mechanisms by which banks can overcome a madness of crowds. I think there's a distinction lurking in the background, the classic distinction between being insolvent and being illiquid. Ah, uh, exactly. I was just thinking the same thing. So explain that. So if a, if a bank is insolvent, it means that if even if you gave it all the time for all its assets to mature, um, it would still end up having negative net worth. Couldn't keep its promises. Right. If it's illiquid, it means that, well, maybe to, if you forced it to sell all its assets on a moment's notice to meet a bank run, it would have negative net worth. If you were to, if it could keep going, it would uh, have positive net worth. That would be illiquid. And, you know, it can be very hard to tell the difference because, you know, a lot of times it's very hard to actually value the bank's assets. And there's all sorts of controversies in the middle of the financial crisis about whether banks were illiquid or insolvent. And there, there are still people who disagree. There are people who will adamantly proclaim that Citicorp was insolvent in 2008, and there are about people who are equally adamant in claiming that, no, it was just illiquid. Um, so anyway, that's... But if a bank is sort of demonstrably solvent, it is very hard for it to actually have a liquidity crisis, in my opinion, because it can go out and borrow money from investors. It can say, look, here's my balance sheet. If they can Here are all these assets. Yeah. You know, I can, you know, they can go, you know, in, in our economy, they can go to the Fed with, to the discount window. They can go to the interbank lending market and so on. And, and you know, the way a lot of people describe the financial crisis is that the interbank lending market broke down because people just didn't trust the value of uh, you know, mortgage-related assets. And so all of a sudden, banks that... You know, everybody lost liquidity, and then there, you know, there was just this question of who's solvent and who's not. Yeah, the funny thing about that, of course, is that um, yeah, the way it was phrased was banks were afraid to lend to each other. And you said, well, why were they afraid? Well, that their balance sheet had these complex instruments. As you say, they were hard to value. We weren't sure what the market value was. But, of course, the flip side, the alternative view was, well, actually – they are complex, but we were pretty sure what the value was, and it was a lot less than they were listed on the books. And that's where the illiquidity versus insolvency issue again uh, comes up. It just I think it, it's hard to tell. Although now, as time passes, uh, I think it increasingly becomes clear that there was a lot more insolvency than people claimed at the time. Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, the what you know, there's certainly. <coughs> If you compared people's views of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to what they were two years ago, I think more, you know, the the meter has shifted much more toward insolvency. Yes. In the case of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the meter may actually be shifting a little bit more toward illiquidity in the case of Citigroup and Bank of America. Although, you know, I, I think I, if you made me choose, I would still be in the insolvency camp. But there's a lot of you know, the fact that they've that some of these banks have been able to repay their TARP loans and so on, um, you know, is indicative that perhaps they uh, um, 
that they were truly were solvent. It really was just a matter of keeping them going uh, a little longer. Again, I think it's I, too early. You, you, you don't really have the, the controlled experiment because uh, you yeah. know, the, the Fed gave away profits to banks in big ways by you know, paying interest on reserves and keeping short-term interest rates low and you know, buying up these assets to raise their market value. So, it's um, a very good know, point. So it's kind of a confusing story. It's a very good point. I think it's too early to tell. Uh, a lot of those mortgage-backed securities are still sitting on the balance sheet, and it, I think I'm told by people who understand it better than I do, they're sitting on the balance sheet at unrealistic levels. And um, I think Fannie and Freddie are a perfect example. I found an old story from June 2008 which was three months before they went um, – they were taken over by the government. And when they were taken over, as you say, some people said uh, – a lot of people told me, a lot of so-called experts said, oh, they're not, you know, they're not insolvent. In fact, they're cash flow positive. They, they, they really – they don't even need to be taken over. It's an, over, it's an overreach. It's an it's exaggeration. And in June, the uh, – this is uh, tragicomic uh, – the Congressional Budget Office – uh, June of this year? No, June of 2008. Uh, the CBO said that uh, Fannie and Freddie might cost the taxpayers as much as $25 billion, but there was a 50-50 chance it would be zero. Uh, according to the CBO now, for 2009 and 2010, it's uh, $390 billion, uh, and that number, I suspect, will, will continue to rise. So, the yes, the illiquidity argument seems to have lost out to insolvency in that case. Of Freddie and Fannie, we'll see what happens with those other banks. But let's let's turn to mortgages. So when you have a large uh, asset that you want to purchase, uh, typically you'd like to purchase that uh, with with some borrowed money, not with all cash, because it's an asset that has market value. It's pretty liquid. It's somewhat liquid. Uh, it's it's nothing like. Um, uh, cash, and it's nothing like a Picasso. It's it's somewhere in between in terms of its future expected value. So I want to go and I want to borrow that money. So let's say I'm going to buy a, a $250,000 house. We can imagine a world where if the seller of the house uh, would, would, would want $250,000, the buyer's got to come up, let's say, with the whole thing. He's not going to borrow any of it. Uh, but it would be attractive to be able to borrow because it's going to be hard to accumulate that much money. Of course, the price might change if I couldn't borrow. But one way to borrow would be to go around to a whole bunch of different people and say, uh, lend me some of the money I need for the down payment, and I'll pay you back uh, at some point in the future. We'd agree to what that time frame would be. The house is very sturdy. You can inspect it. Uh, It's in a good neighborhood. Uh, That could change, of course. Things change over time. But the asset itself is, is pretty – it's going to depreciate a little bit over time, but I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to replace the roof and the gutters and all that when I need to, paint it. So I could go, go around to a whole bunch of people and borrow uh, $10,000 from a bunch of them to accumulate enough to buy the house with some of my own money putting it down. And, of course, that's very costly on my part, and their willingness to lend it to me, they'd be well lending perhaps a, a significant part of their of – their, wealth at the time, so they'd want a particularly high rate of interest. And what the bank does is intermediate that that transaction. It it goes and accumulates the $10,000 from a bunch of people and then lends me the 200000 so that I can buy the $250,000 house with 50000 of my own money, say, 20% down, and 200000 from the bank, meaning from a whole bunch of people pooled together for the diversification reasons we talked about. Now, what you speculated about in your post, which was, I thought, very interesting, was first you made the observation that the United States is the only country that has a 30-year mortgage. That is, I stretch yeah, out. That's a little extreme, but it's certainly the, it's much more common, way more common here than other countries, and there are plenty of other countries where it doesn't exist at all. So the alternative would be a much shorter mortgage. So why don't why do we have – such long mortgages in the United States. What has happened to create that? Um, the short answer is the Great Depression and custom. Uh, government policy following the Great Depression and custom. Uh, let me back up a little bit. The, what, what I 
What I think is peculiar about our, our mortgages are what I call the embedded options. Yeah, talk about that. So uh, one of the options is the option to uh, turn in the keys and walk away from the mortgage. That is known as uh, technically as a non-recourse loan, meaning that if if I default on my mortgage, the bank has no recourse other than to take possession of the house. They can't go after me and my assets. Um, and that <clears throat> I believe the non-recourse loan is a combination of it being uh, state law in many states, although there are some states that allow recourse loans, and then just general custom uh, that's sort of evolved in the direction of the states that uh, have non-recourse loans. But in other countries, for example, Canada, uh, mortgage loans have recourse, so that if you, uh, if the value of your house, let's say you you, you made this, you borrowed two hundred thousand dollars on this two hundred fifty thousand dollar house, and now the value of the house has gone down to one hundred ninety thousand dollars because that's it, the town got in trouble, financial job, some factory left, or my neighbor went to got some crime in it, or. For whatever reason, it's now one hundred ninety thousand. Your mortgage is two hundred thousand. With a non- with a non recourse loan, your best strategy may very well be to walk away from the house, just not pay, even though you might have other assets that would enable you to to pay the mortgage. Uh, in Canada, that would that strategy would not be good because the Canadian mortgage is a recourse loan. So after the bank forecloses on the house and loses the money, they may come back back you for the deficiency. They say, well, we were only able to collect 190000 yeah. on a $200,000 loan, pay up the other $10,000. And so that sort of changes your incentives a lot. So the bottom line is, in, in America, with so many non-recourse mortgage loans, the option to default uh, is quite valuable. And the option to default is, uh, at, is the, in some sense, most valuable for the loans where you make a low down payment, because when you make a low down payment, that increases the likelihood that the price of the house will fall below the value of the mortgage. So, uh, what we've talked about here many times when we talk about leverage, basically, right. the more leveraged you are, the higher the proportion of the loan that uses other people's money, the smaller a change there can be in the asset price that would put you underwater. So it, it, it increases the value of the default option, which uh, in, in theory should make the, make the default option expensive for lenders and should cause the interest rate to be higher. So the, in the United States, the, um, the non-recourse nature of the loan makes the default option valuable, and this recent trend toward low-down payment mortgages makes that option even more valuable and, and should raise the interest rate as a result. The other option that's valuable is the prepayment option. That's the option to refinance the loan, typically without any penalty. So if uh, you take out a 6% loan and six months later the rates are down to 5.5%, you can get rid of your 6% loan, take out a 5.5% loan. Uh, and, and then loan the bank, which was. And then the bank, which was expecting a c- certain flow of. Of cash from its mortgage is now not going right. to is going to see a smaller amount. Right, but it's a one way it's your, it's a one way option. So if rates go up to seven percent and the bank regrets its six percent loan, they don't have the option to make you refinance into a seven percent loan. Right. So it's an option that goes entirely to the borrower. And again, if it were properly priced in, I think that option would. Uh, impose pretty high interest rates on the types of loans that have become typical in the United States. That is a 30-year loan. The value, the option is valuable because you pay off, um, well, because you, you pay off relatively little early in the life of the loan, and uh, just you know, any option, the longer it, it's outstanding, the more valuable it is. Uh, also, the the most common adjustable rate mortgage is this weird thing called a teaser arm, where you uh, you get a a below market interest rate to start with in exchange for what the bank is hoping will be an above market interest rate later on. Although, if uh, if you take out a teaser rate adjustable rate mortgage, uh, your hope is that in a couple years 
interest rates will have stayed low enough that you can refinance uh, and, not, and not have to pay the above market adjustment rate. So it's another mortgage where the option is valuable. So, so what we've evolved in this country are mortgages with extremely valuable options for borrowers. And it's my hypothesis that those options have not been priced properly because of government policies that subsidize those types of mortgages. So that's so my argument is if you took if you sort of took away pulled the government subsidy rug out of the thirty year low down payment non recourse mortgage, if you pulled that rug out, the interest rate on that mortgage would be high relative to something like a Canadian five year mortgage. Uh, where the rate stays constantly for five years and where there's recourse to the borrower. Um, people, so that if you had a, a completely free market, people would say, wow, you know, I can get a five-year Canadian rollover mortgage with a rate of 4%. I have to pay 6.5%, for the American 30-year uh, non-recourse fixed rate with no prepayment penalty uh, Mortgage. I think I'd rather pay four percent than six and a half or seven, and that's how I think the market would uh, greatly reduce, if not eliminate, the thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage if it were allowed to work. So let me. It's, I, when you say it's your hypothesis, I think it's. Um, I think it's. Uh, you know, it's undeniable that that, that that's the case. Um, it just. It's an unseen, wonderful. Economic insight about how government policy can um, distort things, and we get used to it, and so that's just what everyone in America just thinks. Well, a thirty-year mortgage, but let, let, let me repeat it and make sure I understand it, and then I, I want to dig a little deeper into because I think it's ex it's just extremely insightful and important. So what you're saying is that let me get both parts, those two options, the non-recourse part, the government. In many states in America, has a law that says the bank can't come after you for extra. So normally, that privilege of being able to walk away from your house, you're saying, I'd have to pay for it. But the government uh, forces uh, me, actually, forces everyone to pay for it, if I think would be the right way to say it. Well, the only way it can do that is if, is if it, it, it provides subsidies to borrowers who can take advantage of that option. So you know, even if even if the law said uh, you're not allowed to offer a recourse loan, the interest rate on these non-recourse loans would be higher if the market were working, and in particular, it would be much higher on loans with low down payments. So I think the the incentive for people to buy a house with uh, <coughs> with less than ten percent down. In a world of non-recourse loans, they would they would not have the incentive to do that. Banks would be imposing a, a very high interest rate penalty. So again, you'd face a choice. Gee, if I put, you know, if I buy the house now with uh, five percent down, I get a six and a half percent interest rate. I can bring that interest rate down to five and a half if I wait and save up for ten percent down. Maybe I'll save up for the ten percent down payment. That's what I'm like, again. What I think would happen in a market. But there are states that have recourse loans. Yes, I I think for a while the story was that those states were states where interest rates were slightly lower. But I think the ability to enforce recourse loans has has deteriorated. Yeah, that's still uh, it's still it's yeah. just become the custom in the United States that you can walk away from the house. Uh, and because, so I think because of the, the decline in enforcement of, of recourse, I think that the interest rate differentials have gone away. Right. The court has got to then let a bank take your ha take your car, take your uh, garnish your wages, and it's it's got to be willing to enforce that contract. But let's talk about the other part, the prepayment part. What role does government? So in the prepayment part, right, I could lock in an interest rate uh, and forego my right to refinance. In which case, I'd get a lower interest rate. Uh, can I do that now? I believe not. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure what the legal status is, but I think it's pretty hard to even 
include a prepayment penalty and a mortgage. Uh, and in any case, during the recent financial crisis, uh, prepayment penalties, you know, consumer groups you know, took the view that prepayment penalties were anti-consumer, even though they, in some sense they're pro-consumer and that they allow the consumer to get a lower interest rate than they would otherwise. Um, so I, I think... It, yeah, you know, I think that's been difficult. Again, let's go back to the Great Depression, which is sort of the where the, you know, the government changes yeah. its involvement in the mortgage industry. You have uh, borrowers defaulting on these five-year balloon mortgages. The typical mortgage is five years, no principal amortization, uh, so the entire loan is due in five years, and all of a sudden. You know, circumstances have changed, and the borrower has a harder time borrowing, and so we have lots of, de- of mortgage defaults. I mean, the borrower has a has a harder time paying them paying the paying it back. Yeah, because they have to pay it back all of a sudden, right after five years, or get a new loan. So the government says, no, we, we don't like that. We'd like amortizing mortgages, where people pay off some of the principal gradually. Uh, that's safer, and we'd like them to be over thirty years and with fixed interest rates so that the borrower is not facing any interest rate risk. So they set up FHA to offer those kinds of loans, and they create a savings and loan industry under the completely separate regulatory and insurance structure called the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, uh, where the, you know, I think it might have almost been by law that they couldn't offer adjustable rate mortgages it's certainly by custom, if not by law, savings and loans, uh, you know, focused on 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Uh, and then, of course, they went belly up in uh, in the 70s and 80s because they were taking too much interest rate risk. Uh, the savings and loans did. The savings and loans. So, we'll, come to, well, let's let's so, come. But so, but the government still wants to keep this 30-year fixed-rate mortgage as the standard, and so they come up with, they, they uh, expand the role of Fannie Mae and uh, introduce Freddie Mac to keep the 30-year fixed rate mortgage going. The problem is that the taxpayers uh, were taking the tail risk, that is the risk that these options would turn out to be extremely valuable. Um, so the taxpayers, it turned out, were on the hook for the default option becoming valuable, and I think they were also on the hook for the prepayment option becoming valuable, although the interest rate risk uh, is not, is not in this instance, what destroyed Freddie and Fannie. Well, it's only $390 billion and counting, so it's really a bargain. Um, by the way, that number differs from the official government number, which is, I think, $145 billion, uh, and that's because it's the CBO number, which is the 390, uh, has a different accounting standard. I suspect a slightly more appropriate one than the um, tr- the Treasury and GAO budgeting number. But uh, I'm going to go back to your your historical account. And we've we've talked about this before in a previous podcast. When I knew a lot less, I know a little bit more now. So I'd like to review it, and I'm sure listeners would be happy to hear it as well. What explain the role that Fannie and Freddie uh, played? And uh, of course, still play now through the government who runs them in making thirty-year mortgages more attractive than they otherwise would be, and that has to do with uh, a bank's willingness to hold this thirty-year uh, asset, right? That, that Fannie and Freddie allows them to get well, them off the books. Okay, so you know, imagine you're a savings and loan, and you you've got mortgages that going to take 30 years to repay, and you've got these deposits that will be withdrawn at a moment's notice. You can see how uh, fragile that setup is. You know, if, if, if the market isn't perfectly smooth and stable, that, that's really an unsustainable um, imbalance between the duration of your assets and the duration of your liability. Explain that. Explain why. Well, if, if interest rates go up a little bit, the market value <coughs> of your mortgages. So let's say you're you're paying three percent on deposits and you're earning six percent on your mortgages, and now rates go up by five percentage points. So you could get eleven percent on a new mortgage, but you issued six mortgages at six percent. So you're not getting that. 
and now your deposits cost you eight percent. Um, you know, and and you're you're now losing money on on everything. You're getting six percent on your mortgages, and you're paying eight percent for your deposits. And you can't do that for very long without going bankrupt. So it's, that's the fragility of that uh, setup. So what you need is to be able to borrow long as well as to lend long. So so. Maybe not for 30 years, but issue at least 10-year debt to kind of offset the, and to make sure that you, you don't get caught by an interest rate rise. And uh, Freddie and Fannie had the ability to do that, whereas typical banks and savings and loans, uh, it, it would cost them much more to borrow. So Freddie and Fannie's ability to borrow, including they had you know, reputations in international capital markets, um, they they were much in a much better position to finance uh, these mortgages than were the typical banks. So what they were essentially doing was, you say, uh, borrowing long. They were issuing bonds yeah. or debt, where instead of having to pay the, a depositor back on demand, they had a long, slow on a bond, say, interest payment, which would match their portfolio of, of loans that they were collecting money from. Yeah. So, so the question then is, would there be in the absence – and so that would have worked out pretty well. In fact, there's a, a passage I love from Joe Stiglitz where he explains how uh, there's market failure in the mortgage market, and that's why you need Fannie and Freddie. And so he, what he forgot about was the fact that Fannie and Freddie would have their own incentives – to push the regulatory envelope, and that's why we're out the three ninety billion and counting. But it does raise the possible question: if it's really a truly, if you want to call it a market failure, the fact that I don't want to call it—it's it, it's a failure to provide the mortgages that Joe Stiglitz might want to provide that he thinks I mean, are the. I, 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 <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to describe. I mean, I, I you know, the, tr- the traditional market failure is some you know kind of. Um, People, you know, no one owns the fishing rights, so people overfish and uh, produce an outcome that individually makes sense. That is, you get as much, you, know, you try to catch as much fish as you can, but collectively destroys the fishing grounds. That's that's a typical market failure. Uh, I, I think it's really stretching the term market failure to say that there's some market failure in the mortgage market because you don't get the kind of mortgages that Stiglitz wants. Right, but it does raise the possibility that, that a, could a private financial institution emerge without government that would play the role of Fannie and Freddie, that would extend the length of a mortgage beyond what it would be in the absence of such a financial intermediary. So in the absence of Fannie and Freddie and in the absence of regulation that might like the non-recourse loans that we talked about, we might see 5%, I expect we would see, five-year loans, some kind of short-duration loans, or if there were longer-duration loans, they'd have relatively high down payments, and uh, that would be fine. That world would, would, would do okay. Well, I, think, I think to get the longer duration, you, all, you need to have some way to manage the interest rate risk also. Right. So, um, That's where you need the. So either you have to have banks that can develop you know, the ability to issue long-term bonds to investors and find and investors willing to to invest in those, um, you know, or something like that. And an individual bank would struggle to do that, presumably. Maybe, for, although maybe. I don't see why why you know a. A well-capitalized bank would be in any worse position than Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, other than that the well-capitalized bank doesn't have this implicit guarantee from the government that if you know if all else fails, the, the bonds will be paid off by the government. Well, that means they'd have to charge a higher, they'd have to offer a higher rate of interest to attract the long-term loans, right? And it means they'd have to provide some kind of assurance about their capital. Yeah, they might have to hold more capital than Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae did. Just a little more, which I think at times were I think probably t- a lot more. At times they were leveraged sixty, seventy to one. Yeah. Um, so all that would mean, 
what that would mean, by all that would mean, I don't mean very little. I mean, the most important thing that would mean is that interest rates would generally be higher. On 30-year type loans. And yeah, probably. So borrowers would see an incentive to share some of the risk of interest rate movements and to not have such a valuable prepayment option. And um, that seems like a good thing. Uh, it's it's It would be slightly less pleasant to be a buyer of a home, but it would be more pleasant to be a taxpayer. Yeah. So, And it would have a, a stability to the system that we could stop worrying about it all the time. Yeah. So my question is, and this is maybe our punchline, who's benefiting from this current system? Why is it that the political forces are so strong to maintain it? So I want to think about this as a short-run and a long-run discussion. The short-run discussion, right now, the government is running Fannie and Freddie and presumably doing so to make sure that buyers can get access to to, uh, mortgage financing in a relatively turbulent time. They're very anxious about the price uh, of housing in various markets and low interest rates, which are very artificially low right now, are helping to keep the price of housing higher than it would otherwise be. So there's a big short-run incentive for the government to continue the subsidy uh, that is the system has created in the past. Is there a long-run incentive as well? Who's benefiting? I can tell a rent-seeking story. Yeah, please do. Um, and it really goes back, you, you, you can see the beginning of it, uh, perhaps if you read... Uh, Michael Lewis's first book, Liar's Poker, uh, where he describes uh, <coughs> what's going on in the 1980s and at, at some Wall Street firms, and they're looking for profit opportunities. And then you notice that the mortgage debt market in the United States is huge. Uh, you know, it's maybe the biggest debt market, and Wall Street isn't really involved in it very much. But there's a potential to be involved in it if you could... Uh, securitize a lot more mortgages. Uh, but securitization only uh, can produ- only makes sense if, if these embedded options are, are important. You can't, uh, you know, if you had five-year mortgages, you couldn't carve them up into complex tranches uh, at, at, to get any, any profit. But 30-year mortgages, you can kind of carve up into different securities, and uh, there's a a profit to be made in doing that. Is that because people have different tolerances for risk and tastes for risk across those longer? Right, and people have different habitats. And also, quite frankly, I think Wall Street can fool people pretty easily. I mean, there was a story that came out, I guess, a couple months ago about this abacus investment where uh, the SEC is uh, accusing Goldman Sachs of misleading investors. But if you read Michael Lewis's book, and this is from 25 years ago, they're in the business of trying to take advantage of of their customers all along. And um, they... Not sure I believe that, but... Oh, I think so. I, I mean, I think that uh, I mean, just Michael Lewis gives some examples of things that he did himself, and he's no, he was you know, kind of a neophyte at this, where he was able, you know, the, the customer isn't really, some customers aren't aware of what prices should be. Sure. Well, not, they don't calculate the risk properly. Um, so a lot of this, but, you know, so a lot of their ability to create markets is, is you know, in some sense, the ability to take advantage of other people's stupidity. Uh, but let's. But you know, even aside from that, you know, they're you know, they're, they're carving up these securities and making a lot of money. They're making money creating the securities, trading in the securities, giving advice to other people on securities. Um, so it was just a huge profit opportunity for Wall Street. Whereas if if the if the mortgage lending stayed at banks, with banks issuing you know long term certificates, you know, like three year and five year certificates of deposit or other forms of debt, and then funding five-year mortgages, there's nothing in it for Wall Street. So I I would tell a rent-seeking story, and I, again, I think if you read Michael Lewis's book, you can see how hard they uh, 
the Wall Street firms worked the political process in order to uh, establish mortgage securitization. And now we're at the point where many politicians have been sold on the idea that securitization is absolutely necessary, that we cannot have a mortgage market without securitization. Uh, and I think that might be true for the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, but that in turn means that the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage in the end needs to have the tail risk taken by taxpayers. Wall Street has proven that it cannot take the tail risk. Uh, it certainly could, you couldn't take the... When you say the tail risk, you mean... I mean the, ex- the risk of very extreme events, so an extreme drop in house prices. A big move in interest rates. Or an extreme move in interest rates. Uh, we haven't had an extreme move in interest rates since the 1980s, so I can't say that absolutely Wall Street cannot take the tail risk, but I bet you they cannot. Uh, and they, they certainly could not take the tail risk uh, on the house price side. Uh, you, you had all these firms that went that uh, you know, had to come, you know, run into the arms of Uncle Sam when, uh, when house prices fell. And now they don't want to take that tail risk. What, the, what Wall Street wants is for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to stay alive but revert to the model that Freddie Mac had in the 1970s, which was it was a purely government agency. It had no private shareholders and did not have any mortgage portfolio to speak of. All it did was guarantee against the default risk. So it took care of the default option uh, that is all the risk involved in the default option, but it did not take care of any of the risk in the prepayment option, and that gives that would give Wall Street the opportunity to carve up uh, mortgages into securities where uh, the prepayment option would be hidden and spread around, and they could earn money again by uh, underwriting securities, by trading securities, uh, and by giving advice on securities. So if we asked Wall Street as if it were an oracle, we asked Wall Street, well, gee, that seems a little bit good for you and not so good for me. Um, they would, of course, I think, respond and say, well, not good for you as a taxpayer. We made a mistake. You know, we, it got out of hand. So we've got to make sure it doesn't get out of hand again. So we're going to put some restrictions on. And it's good because it means that, that – um, Homebuyers uh, can finance their mortgages at, at a quote low price. It's a little bit misleading, of course, because that low cost of capital for for homebuyers helps raise the price of houses artificially. Correct? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but yeah, but the yeah the violins that they'll play are the violins for the you know the first time homebuyer affordable housing, uh, maintaining value of houses, you know the real estate market. I mean, they they they, they create a broad lobby. Uh, in favor of that. It's always important to remember in any discussion like this the, that the alternative to buying a house is um, renting, which is not homeless, right? Yeah. If you don't own a home, you're not homeless. You are usually a renter. Right, and as, as you pointed out earlier, the, alter- the, the, the real comparison may be buying a house with a subsidized mortgage for two hundred thousand dollars, or buying it for an un- with an unsubsidized mortgage for one hundred eighty thousand, and you know that you know, the the you know, different people benefit you know from from those different uh, you know, setups, but it it varies. It depends a lot on your timing. Yeah. But you know, there's another aspect of this. John Popola was uh, talking to me about the other day. It's an excellent point, which is that when you increase home ownership artificially, which is what we've labored to do for a very long time in the United States, certainly since the Great Depression, and then with with greater zeal, starting in the early 1990s through 2005 or so when it exploded, 2006, and then through 2008. Um, one of the things you do is you make it harder for people to move, um, and it makes the, it has impacts on the labor market. So when you're unemployed and you think maybe you should move, forget this issue of being underwater and 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 st- struggling with the issue of whether you should walk away from your house and or let it go into foreclosure, whether you should default. Uh, the fixed costs of moving in and out of property 
are, are very substantial. Yeah. Uh, and I, it's interesting to think about where that – I mean, a lot of that is – I don't know what a lot of that is, actually. I don't know why it is – it's so expensive uh, to buy and sell a house. A lot of it is reg- is state and local regulation of registering the deed in particular ways. But maybe it's not. I mean, you really don't want to mess that up. It's it's your largest asset. Um, so, you know, the, fi- the fix – turning a house – Buying and selling a house uh, and then buying another one uh, because you have a better opportunity in a different market to work or because you've had a baby or because uh, your kids have gone off to college, those are all very expensive. And we've distorted that choice dramatically by making it so relatively inexpensive to buy a house. Yeah. um, And, yeah. So it's... It's not clear that home ownership is the is, is you know is, has only benefits and no costs. Well, let your player stereo as loud as you like. For most of us, that's really the in the early years that's our main attract attraction. And you can, um, you know, put a lot of nail a lot of things into the wall. It's your house. Live it up. Yeah. Um, and you get a backyard often, which is uh, part of the uh, part of the appeal. We're almost out of time. I want to ask you about a related but somewhat different topic, which is uh, the general interest rate policy of the Fed right now. Um, if you look at the Fed over the last 10 years, it looks something like a roller coaster. We had a period where interest rates plummet, federal funds rate plummets uh, around 2001 and f- supposedly a fear of a recession and response a bigger recession in response to the 9-11 attacks and the tech bubble bursting. And then they stay very low, uh, around the 1%, the federal funds rate, around 1% for, for a number of years. And then all of a sudden they start rising rapidly, and John Taylor has criticized this, of course, uh, very emphatically. And then uh, Ben Bernanke, in response to the 2008 crisis, brings interest rates down to, I think, what are they – a quarter percent right now, the federal funds rate, extremely low, close to close to zero. And is that, in your opinion, does that is that affecting uh, all interest rates? Most people say yes. And if yeah. so, what does that do to the allocation of capital in the United States as we jerk this interest rate around? Well, um, I have to admit that my personal opinion, and this maybe reflects the uh, flaws in my background, but I, my personal opinion is that the capital markets determine interest rates, and the Fed is very often following. So I'm, I'm one of the people who doesn't like to uh, interpret events as being Fed-caused. So. Well, that, I used to be in that group. Um, I'm less in that group now. Here, here's, here's why. Right now... Um, you can't get much return for your money. Um, why is that? Why is it? You know, is it because let's let's take the Fed. Let's let's look at economic fundamentals. Let's get the Fed out of the discussion. Um, people are very anxious. They're anxious about the future. They're worried um, on the on the saving side. People are very anxious to save because they're worried about the future. They're saving more than they used to, but they're not saving an extremely large amount. But they're apprehensive about lending their money out to risky things. Um, on the borrowing side, people are apprehensive about borrowing because they're not sure that the business that they might want to start is going to be successful and launching it during a time when a lot of people are out of work who might buy your product. Um, but there are a lot of businesses that are humming along, doing okay, who'd like to use some funds to make their – uh, business work more effectively. They'd like to use the financial markets to to smooth their inflow and outflow of cash. So what what's going on fundamentally that makes it so difficult right now to earn any money? And um, any thoughts on that? Um, Why is guess, the market interest rate so low if it's not the Fed? Um, I guess that really the demand for borrowed funds on the part of businesses is low. Uh, you've got a, um, it's not clear where you want to expand. 
And I think we're at a stage of business cycle where businesses want to see profits before they expand rather than expand in anticipation of profits. That would be my answer. Well, I think that's true. And I think there's a lot of folks sitting on waiting to see which way government policy is going to go, which way the economy is going to go. Um, it's just surprising to me that um, it seems to me hard to argue that that the low rates that we see right now are not uh, due to an enormous surge of liquidity on the part of the Fed. You want to hold, still hold that view, though? Yeah, I still hold that view. I think you know, short-term inflation is low, um, so it's not clear that real interest rates are, um, you know, are necessarily a lot lower than usual. That's a good point. I like that. My guest has been Arnold Klein. Arnold, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.